This is the Sex and Psychology Podcast, and it's the sex ed you never got in school and won't get anywhere else. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. When I was a teenager, I had a lot of curiosity about sex, but there weren't a lot of places I could go to learn about it. The sex ed I got in school was pretty much worthless and just left me with more questions. It wasn't something my parents were super comfortable discussing either. Most of what I ended up learning came from listening to late-night call-in radio shows, watching HBO's Real Sex, and hearing whatever my friends could tell me. For teens coming of age today, however, the landscape is totally different. Most of them have smartphones, computers, and social media, and they have access to way more sexuality-related information and porn than I ever could have imagined when I was that age. And all of this technology is changing the sexual landscape for teens. Some of the changes we've seen in recent years is that rough sex is on the rise among teens and that they're increasingly exploring their sexuality online through sexting. All of this means that the sex ed we're giving teens has to adapt to reflect these realities. In today's show, we're going to talk about how the sexual landscape has evolved for teens, what you can do to become the kind of parent whose kids feel comfortable bringing you their sex questions, how to navigate questions that might make you uncomfortable, what to do when you don't have the answers, and more. I am joined by Dr. Debbie Herbenick, an award-winning, internationally recognized sexuality researcher and an ASEC-certified sexuality educator. She is a professor at the Indiana University School of Public Health and the author of five best-selling books about human sexuality. Dr. Herbenick has been published in the Washington Post, New York Times, and Men's Health Magazine, and she has provided expert opinions about sex on several television shows, including Tyra, Katie, The Doctors, and The Tamron Hall Show. This is going to be an amazing and very practical conversation. Stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. Have you ever wanted to study abroad before and learn about sex at the same time? Here's your chance. You can join me and the Sexual Health Alliance through our unique study abroad program on sex and culture. Our next course offerings are in May 2024 in Amsterdam and Berlin, where you'll have a chance to explore different cultures, engage in immersive learning experiences, and meet international experts in the field of sexuality, all while making new friends and having a lot of fun. Some of the topics we explore in these courses include sex education, sexual health, sex work, LGBTQ plus issues, kink practices, and more. Come meet amazing people, gain valuable insights, and have a transformative learning experience. Visit sexualhealthalliance.com to learn more and secure your spot today. Hi, Debbie, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. So you just published a new book titled Guess Your Kid that's all about what parents today need to know about teens and sex. Now, before we dive into it, let me first ask, how often is it the case that as a sexuality educator and researcher that you have parents reaching out to you for advice on how to talk to their kids about this subject? Yeah, very often. I mean, I know I've encountered this quite a bit personally, and I've even had people ask me to give the talk to their kids. So when did parents start asking you questions about this and how often does it come up? So in addition to being a sex researcher and a sex educator, I'm also a mom. And so it comes up a lot because I'm at kid birthday parties, I'm at soccer games, you know, I'm at dance practices. And so I'm around parents a lot of the time. 
And um, it's not unusual for a parent to kind of take me aside, um, even in these, you know, these very kid settings and ask me a question or say, oh, you know, my, my child just asked me how babies are made because I'm pregnant. And, and I told them, you know, such and such. And is that too much at this age? Is that all right? What should I have said? And so, yeah, certainly even before having kids, um, people just saw me because of my work as somebody who was knowledgeable and comfortable, but it has only increased since becoming a parent as well. And I welcome the questions. I love them, especially because I'm somebody who grew up in a home where nobody was talking about sex. So I value the chance to be a part of families' lives in supporting parents with these conversations. Thank you for sharing that. And like I said, I can totally relate because I have a lot of people who come to me asking similar questions. And I bet you're probably going to be taking copies of this book to (laughs) the events that you go to as a parent because it'll come in handy, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm not sure I can pass this book. (laughs) (laughs) parties, But you never know. So getting to the new book, it seems like a big part of your reason for writing it is that parents need a new modern guide because the sexual landscape is just totally different than it used to be for young folks. So let's start with that. We know that teens today have greater access to the internet than any previous generation. But beyond that, in what other ways do you see the sexual landscape as having changed for teens in the last decade or two? Well, you know, the internet is a huge part of it. And people think about different things when they think about their kids having access to the internet. And and it's not just access, but they have to be on the internet at most ages because their schools often require it. Um, Their schools might give them a device um, that they have to use for assignments or, or homework. Even if they don't give them a device, they might assign them projects that involve doing online research, for example, even in elementary years. Once kids have internet access, all sorts of things happen. Um, I've heard from many parents whose kids, even very young kids, you know, seven, eight-year-olds, through completely normative exploration with their bodies, have um, taken that a step further because they have phones and they have images and they have um, what people think of as kids-safe messaging platforms, but they've taken and shared pictures of their bodies at young ages, not because they're sexting in the way that people do, you know, at older ages, but they're just, you know, being playful and exploring. The internet has also brought us online chat systems. And many of my college students, you know, I mean, really many, many, many of them have shared how when they were 9, 10, 11, 12, and they were at play dates, at sleepovers, that it wasn't uncommon for them to use these video chat sites and often encounter adult men strangers who were, you know, exposing themselves to them as, again, as kids or masturbating online. And Mother Jones did a really important profile on that, you know, in fall 2022 that I think was important to read. There's even on gaming sites, right, a lot of adults who connect with kids of any gender and say various things or try to get them to send pictures and so on. And then we often think about pornography, and that's one of the things, but it's not the only thing. And social media is there too. A lot of what young people learn about sex, they learn about from TikTok videos and Instagram and YouTube. And so the internet is lots of things and it brings up lots of important conversations. I think the other big issue has been the societal focus on consent. And that was such an important part of even before Me Too, we had in the U.S. like the It's On Us campaign. And then we had the Me Too campaign all around the world and that movement. And um, it brought up issues of consent. But a lot of people leave that conversation at make sure you get consent 
without talking with kids about the nuances of it. Thanks for sharing all of that. I think you make a lot of great points and that totally makes sense because there is a big shifting, changing landscape for kids. It's totally different today than it used to be. Now, before we go further, let me first ask for your take on something. So I follow the sexuality literature closely because I have a textbook on the subject and I need to update it every couple of years. And from what I've read and heard, it seems like we're in kind of a strange place. And I say this because on the one hand, I've seen reports about young people using condoms less, having record high levels of STIs, and engaging in more rough and risky sexual behaviors. But at the same time, I've seen reports about young people having less sex and with fewer partners than generations past, and that teens are waiting longer to have sex, and that the teen pregnancy rate has hit a record low. And I can't help but feel like it's kind of hard to paint a portrait of what teenage sexuality today is, because it kind of feels like whiplash when you're going from one article to another, right? So to me, it kind of seems like teens are moving in two different directions. Some might seem prone to taking more risks, some might seem prone to being more cautious. So how would you characterize what's going on today with teens? And why do you think some of the research results seem to point to conflicting outcomes? Yeah, it's a great question. And that's often on my mind as well. And I know it for many people who study adolescent sexuality, because on the one hand, one would think that if fewer teens are having sex, and they are, like there's no doubt about that. I mean, that is a very consistent finding between our research and a lot of other people's research. So, but one would think if fewer teens are having sex and we shouldn't have all the STI problems that we do, but we've had, you know, condom use has been declining since at least like 2008, 2009. And so that part is not surprising, right? And so if you have even small portions of people having sex and not using condoms and probably not having easy access to STI testing, it travels throughout a community. So it, it can still do that. But it's really tricky. We also see that, yeah, like I said, you know, they're delaying sex until later. But when they are having sex, a lot of them are having rougher kinds of sex. And that's been a big area of my research is focusing on these, what we think of as like the mainstreaming of rough sex, where it's not anything particular or unique or thought of as like BDSM or kink. It's just kind of what sex is. And so for many teenagers and young people, it's very common for them to engage in rough sex activities. And sometimes both people um, are involved in it. And other times, at least one person who's involved in it is not okay and was surprised and feels harmed, which I actually think is part of the decrease in partnered sexual activities for young people, because there's some subset of them that aren't going well that in our studies, we hear from young people who describe feeling really scared from their early like making out encounters because it doesn't even happen necessarily like when they start having oral sex or intercourse. Sometimes it's just the early like kissing stages when someone goes to like choke them or smother them or call them names that feel really condescending and, and degrading to them that they didn't ask to be called. You know, it gets really complicated, I think, to understand the full landscape of it. But that's what we're in the middle of. And that's what we're here to do as educators and researchers. Yeah. So it's, like I said, it's difficult to paint a comprehensive portrait because it seems like there's a lot of different things happening all at once. And that's why I appreciate the work that you do in terms of trying to shine a light on some of the different things that are going on. So getting back to the book, it starts with something that I think is really key, which is how to become an askable parent. So in surveys I've seen on teens' attitudes, they often say that they want to talk to their parents about sex, 
but they don't know how to do it or they're afraid to do it. And when you look at surveys of parents, they're kind of saying the same thing. They want their kids to be able to come to them with questions, but they don't know how to encourage that or how to even start a conversation about this without feeling awkward, embarrassed, or uncomfortable. So what are some practical things that a parent can do so that your kids feel like they can come to you with questions? Yeah, those are great questions. And it's so important to try to be that person that your kids can come to. So I think there's a few things. First of all, I think we have so many wonderful books that are for kids these days that are inclusive, that deal with different topics. So at every age and stage, we now have very high quality sexuality books and body books. And so at young ages, You know, I love, I think it's called Amazing You and What Makes a Baby. And there are these books about like, you know, body safety and my body bubble. And so for the youngest kids, we have these books that we can give to them. We can read them with them. They can come back and look at them, you know, on their own. And the same is true at older ages, right? We have puberty books like Wait What by Heather Corinna. We have books like, you know, Sex for the High School Age from Corey Silverberg. And so we've, you know, giving kids these books and if there's anything you want them to pay attention to for the older kids, you know, sort of flagging those pages, putting sticky notes in them, encouraging them to check them out. But also when you share it with them, I think it's important to make sure that they don't feel like you're giving them a book so you don't have to talk to them, but say, you know, check it out, keep it in your room, look at it. Like I found these parts really interesting. If you want to talk with me about it, I'd love to talk with you about it. And some parents say like, you know, can I give my kid a book or am I too cringe, you know? And it's like (laughs) parents are struggling with that too, but that is one way to open a door. You know, some other tips I share in Yes, Your Kid are, you know, I know some parents who years ago, they realized that direct conversations with their kids weren't working, but that their kids love to eavesdrop. And it's true. Like kids cannot stand you having a grown-up conversation that they're not privy to. So they just started acting like they were having their own conversations. And then their kids, of course, wanted to be a part of the conversation. I also talk about five-minute talks, like, you know, just once a week, you can do anything for five minutes. So you just say, I know this might feel awkward, but we're going to try it. It's really important to me that we you learn about your body or sexuality or gender or whatever. So for five minutes, I'll set a timer and we're going to do this. And when the five minutes is over, if you want to keep talking, we can. And if you want to stop, we'll do that. And already, you know, the book's only been out a little bit, but I've already heard from parents who have tried that in their homes. And it's really like, it's so neat to hear the kinds of conversations that they're having and learning about their kids. So it's possible. And I'm excited for more parents to find ways to do that. I love all of that. I think it's great practical advice. And I think it also combats this myth this idea of the talk is this one-time thing where you have to cover everything that your kid needs to know in the span of a single conversation. And if you're thinking about sex education in that way, that's extremely daunting. And so if you can break it up into those smaller pieces, if you can use books and other things as a way to kind of get the conversation started, you know, that's a very helpful, easy route to trying to get this conversation going. Now, let's say you've laid the foundation to be an askable parent, but your kid comes to you with a sex question that makes you uncomfortable. So for example, maybe they have a question about kink. The immediate reaction on the part of many parents would be to shame or to judge 
probably in the interest of trying to discourage something that they don't think their kids should do. But if you start with the shaming and the judging, then you run the risk of cutting off future conversations because you might not be seen as an askable person anymore. So what's your advice in terms of how parents can approach these difficult questions without shame or judgment, but still providing guidance and helpful information? Yeah, you know, we get asked lots of questions as parents, and many of them are very funny. I mean, it's just amazing what kids come up with. But the nice thing about that is many of us have a lot of practice of trying to remain composed while we think inside, okay, how am I going to answer that? So I think, you know, one thing when it comes to sexuality questions is to remember that we are probably as parents also encouraging curiosity in lots of areas of life. And there's no reason that should stop with bodies and sexuality and gender too. So when you get those hard questions, you know, you can take that breath and be like, oh, what have you heard about that? Or that's interesting. What do you think? And so, you know, even sort of turning a question back to them, first of all, it gives you some context. Very often I hear from parents who get a question that feels really scary to them and they've just kind of shut the conversation down. I said, well, where did they say this came from? Like, did they hear something on the bus? You know, did somebody say something at school? And when they asked the context, I mean, a lot of the times it was a completely like innocuous thing that happened and the kid's actually not asking what the parent thinks they're asking. We sometimes think it's really different because we have this whole, you know, knowledge and context of sex that's different than our kids. But sometimes they've just heard someone say some, like some word that they didn't understand. And so, you know, taking a beat, Regaining our composure is a great way to then move into that space and then answer the question that was asked, but not feel like you have to go on a big monologue to everything else. But the reality is that sometimes we do say things that we wish we didn't say. Sometimes we shut down conversations or act like something's weird or why would you ask that? And so, you know, if a parent finds themselves in that situation, one of the great things that we can give our child, it's a real gift, is to try to repair it to reconnect at another time and say, you know, you asked me this question earlier and I wasn't prepared for it. And, you know, I reacted in a way I didn't wish I didn't react. I don't want you to think that that's weird or strange. Like it's a fantastic question. It just caught me off guard. And, you know, you can use that time after you realize what you said, you just, that you wish you didn't say to learn about the thing to find a way to talk about it, to role play with a friend or a partner or a spouse if you want to. But what a gift to show your child that you can admit a mistake, that you can reconnect and repair and also learn new things together. Yeah. And everything you said, it sounds like a great way of modeling healthy, positive relationship communication, because everything that you were just saying there, I think also applies just in the context of our broader intimate relationships, you know, being able to admit that you made a mistake and, you know, to reset, to revisit a conversation, to repair when things didn't go quite the way that you wanted them to. And I think you also make a great point about how, you know, oftentimes when a kid asks a question, the parents have this ladder of inference where they go to a certain place because they've got all that context and all this knowledge, but that's not what their kid is asking. And so I think, you know, there's a great section in your book on how to know how to limit the question to what is being asked as opposed to, you know, going on auto dump and saying everything that you know about the subject, because that's where, you know, the conversations sometimes kind of go off the rails. Absolutely. And kids get bored, right? It's, it's not what they ask. So just answer the question you're asked. And if they want to know more, they'll ask it. 
Yeah, odds are they're probably not asking for a whole lecture on the subject. Now, parents who make themselves askable parents can sometimes get more than they bargained for. So, for example, your kid might ask you personal questions about your own sex life. So, what's your advice on how to handle the situation when it ventures into territory that just feels too personal? Yeah, you know, they they will. Absolutely. I mean, many kids, when they, they find out, you know, that babies can be made through intercourse, have lots of questions for their parents about like, what day did you have sex on? You know, like, um, how does it work? You know, um, where in the house? I mean, these are all real questions that I've heard kids ask. Those are also great opportunities to model healthy boundaries. And so to say, oh, yeah, I understand why you would be curious about that. But that's just personal information, you know, between me and and your mom or dad. We need to think about what that's like throughout their development, because there are some pieces of that that we probably should want to share. I think it's really common, for example, for kids to want to know how you figure out, like, who to date. Um, or who to marry. And so some of those things may not feel as personal. In fact, you probably want to say, um, well, these are kind of the, the characteristics I looked for when I was dating. And you can do that at really young ages. And as kids get older, they may want to know, like, you know, they're really trying to figure out how they make choices about being sexual with other people or how they kind of figure out their own sexual orientation identity. And so, you know, where you have an opportunity to offer a window that feels comfortable for you, then go ahead and answer the question. But where it doesn't, it's okay to say, you know, I think I'm just not ready to share that. Maybe when you're older or that just feels private to me. It's really okay. And again, it models for them how they can respond to questions from other people that feel intrusive too. Yeah, I think that's a great answer. And, you know, just by being an askable parent, that doesn't mean that you have to answer every and all question, especially when it starts to venture into that personal territory. In any relationship, it's good to set boundaries. And so what you're describing is another example of modeling healthy and positive communication, because we all need to set those boundaries in any relationship that we have. So let's talk about consent for a little bit. We know that consent is something that can be communicated in various ways. Sometimes it's very explicit and verbal. Sometimes it's very implicit and nonverbal. It doesn't always look the same. So do you have any tips on how parents can explain this concept of consent to their kids when it's kind of this nebulous thing? Yeah, starting at the earliest ages, we can practice teaching about consent apart from sex. Um, so many families and schools do this now with um, like greetings and stuff, instead of just assuming that people are going to have a hug or a kiss, even at family gatherings, a lot more parents and teachers use things like hugs, handshakes, or high fives. And so kind of asking another kid or asking a family member what they would like. And I think that's a really nice you know way to do that. There's again, fantastic books. I love the book Consent for Kids. It's kids from like younger to elementary and even like tweens really like it. Um, it gives lots of comic book type scenarios that talk about different aspects of consent or permission. And we can even do that like with our pets, right? I think actually pets are a really great way because they don't speak to us with words. 
but you can tell from the way they're, you know, they're using their ears or their tail, or if they scratch you or sneer at you, if something's okay. So even for any family with pets, you know, you say like, oh, don't hold the cat like that. And they're like, no, they're letting me. I mean, one of my phrases is letting is not liking. And I don't think that the cat likes it because their ears are facing back now. And so I think we can also look for those opportunities and we can do that with siblings too. You know, like I I don't think your brother or sister wants that right now. And so thinking about that, whether it's friends, teenagers, like, are you sure they wanted to watch that movie because it looked like you were the only one that wanted to watch it? No, they were fine with it. Were they fine with it or did they want to? So helping kids to just think about like a process of it all can be wonderful. And, you know, when you get to the sex part, you also have more specific opportunities for talking about the sex part of consent as well. Yeah. And I think that's all great advice because consent doesn't just apply in the world of sex, right? Consent is part of our everyday life and everything that we do in our interactions with other people. So there are so many opportunities that you can incorporate lessons about that just into everyday life. Now, as a parent who has the role of sex educator, you're not always going to have the answers. So for example, you might have an LGBTQ child, but you're not part of that community. So when you as a parent don't have the answers, what should you do? Admit you don't have the answers or you don't have the experience, but that you want to learn, right? And so, I mean, even as a sex researcher and educator, I don't have the answers to everything. That's why I that's why I'm a researcher because I'm curious <laughs> and I want to learn. And so I think again, that's really nice modeling. And with different ages, we can learn to in different ways. So with younger kids, if kids ask something that you don't have the answer to, you can say things like, I don't know the answer to that. It's a really good question. I'm going to look on the internet privately for a few minutes. And remember, I don't have you look on the internet because it's mostly adult things for other adults. And I don't know what I'm going to stumble upon, but let me look it up and then I'm going to share it with you. And kids can understand that. And then, you know, for older kids that you feel more comfortable seeing things on the internet, or if you're comfortable with the settings you have and filters on your on your computer, then you might say, let's look together. And one of the nice things about that is you can also show them how you search the internet and how you comb through it in ways where you're putting more trust in certain sites than others. And so you can even narrate that like, oh, you had this great question about STIs. Well, I'm going to go to the CDC's website. You know, they have some really nice fact sheets and you just sort of say it out loud because that voice that you're now putting into the world will become the voice inside their heads eventually. And so it helps them think later on that if they want to learn about STIs, they can go to some trustworthy health sites rather than just, for example, believing what their friend at school tells them. Wait, so you're not just supposed to go to Google and type in sex, right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and, and when you do, what do you make sense of with these? Because they do sometimes do that, right? Yeah, I think that's all great advice and information. And something that you said there actually reminded me of why I got into sex research in the first place. So I was a teaching assistant for a human sexuality course, and I had to lead these weekly recitation sections where students would come in and we'd talk about what was discussed in class that week, but they'd also ask their sex questions. And I got asked a lot of questions that I didn't know the answer to. And I would always go and search and try and find research that could help to answer that question. But sometimes there just wasn't any research available. And one of the questions I got a lot about was how do friends with benefits work, right? So how do you make that relationship 
work so that it doesn't get complicated and weird. And so that actually led me to start conducting research on that specific topic. And I've published multiple studies on it since then, just because I wanted to answer that question that a student had asked me. Absolutely. I think our students' questions are are driving forces. And, you know, I think the other thing that parents can do is if they're looking for a personal experience, like you talked about, like, what if your kid's LGBTQ and you're not part of that community? Even identifying other trusted adults that can be sources of support and information or classes. I mean, there's classes now on like puberty workshops or period workshops for cisgender dads and stuff, right? So if your dad's raising, you know, somebody who's menstruating, well, see if you can connect them with somebody that you trust. And so whether it's about sexual identity or bodies or puberty, there's almost certainly somebody in your network, your close friends or family that you could say, you know, I don't have that experience in my body or in my life, but aunt or uncle so-and-so does or our friend, and they would be a great person that I'd feel safe with you talking to about that. Yeah. And I think that highlights how every parental situation is different, which makes it hard to give one size fits all advice in this particular area. So thanks for all of this amazing information, Debbie. I'm looking forward to continuing our conversation in the next episode, where we're going to get into discussing when and how to start talking to your kids about sex and talk about things like sex and technology. Thank you so much. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and to get a copy of your new book? Sure. Um, Our work is at the Center for Sexual Health Promotion um, at Indiana University. And the book, Yes, Your Kid, What Parents Need to Know About Today's Teens and Sex, is available everywhere books are sold, right? Amazon, Bookshop, Barnes & Noble, um, your local independent bookstore. So thank you so much for the chance to share about it. Thanks again for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Thank you for listening. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter and TikTok at Justin Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. And if you have a question you'd like me to answer on a future episode of this show, you can leave me a podcast voicemail at speakpipe.com slash sex and psychology. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.